You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. I want you to open up Exodus chapter 6. If you don't have it open already, uh, we're going to make our way through this. And, um, and these three points that I've got aren't coming out of my own head. They're just three points that are right there in front of you in the text. And I'm sure you would have isolated them yourself. They're three things that God says about himself, about his nature, that are very important for us to know. Uh, each one of them hangs together and is just as important as the other, and so I want you to, to uh, stick with me as we go through this. But before we get to this uh, first 12 verses in chapter 6, I want to go back just a couple of verses and give us a little bit of context for this sermon tonight. So you remember from last week, uh, the Israelites found that when they turned to God and worshipped Him and gave their lives to Him, uh, things got harder, not better. And we all kind of nodded along and said, yeah, that's kind of, broadly speaking, our experience that often when it comes to following the Lord Jesus, things can get harder for us. And that certainly was the case with the Israelites. Their labor was increased. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and things generally got worse to the point where they were complaining to Moses and Aaron and saying, well, we should never come. Things were better, like we were slaves, but they were better than they have been since you turned up. And then in verse 22 and 23, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. This exasperated Moses coming before the living God, kind of shaking his fist in God's face in some way and saying, listen, you, you've done nothing. I've, I've responded. I've stepped out in faith. I've gone face to face with the most powerful man on the earth, and you've done nothing. You might have been tempted, or you might have, in fact, done this yourself. You might have had these times in your life where you've come before God, and the question has been, where are you? What are you doing? You're doing nothing in this situation. I'm suffering. I'm in darkness. And you might have heard us at this church encourage you that if that's how you're feeling, that ought to be what you communicate to God, right? There's no hiding how you're feeling from God. You may as well be upfront with Him. And the truth, the beautiful truth, is that God's big enough to handle your indictments. But one thing we don't stress enough, I think, is that while God might welcome our honesty, he also has his own response. And this is the response that we're going to focus on tonight, God's response to Moses' indictments. And what he does by way of response is just demonstrate his trustworthiness. He demonstrates for Moses and the people of Israel and for us tonight, he demonstrates why it is that he can be trusted. And so they're my three points. We serve a God who is the ruler of the world. He rules over all things as sovereign Lord. And he's also the Lord who keeps his promises. He doesn't ever break a single promise. He never gives up on his covenant with his people. And he's the Lord who redeems his people. He redeemed them then. And he is the same redeemer today. So check it out. Let's start with point number one. The God we worship is the Lord who rules 
his world. So in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. He's saying now, because things have got so bad, now you'll see how great and mighty I am. In some sense, God says things had to get so bad so that you would see how glorious I am. They needed to see that it wasn't Pharaoh who was going to let them go. It wasn't Moses who was going to lead them out of Egypt. It was God who is the agent of their redemption. It's God. And so I think you'll find this often in life, that one of the reasons that God lets us descend into seasons of darkness is so that he can demonstrate the brilliance of his light. I've got a lot of experience seeing sunrises because I'm a daddy, and, uh, and I'm a daddy particularly of a boy who doesn't enjoy sleeping, uh, certainly doesn't have much experience with it. And for most of his life, I've been up to see the sunrise because I've been up with him. And the benefit of it, in at least in summertime, is that it's warm outside at 4.30 in the morning. And so uh, instead of just sitting with him um, inside, I can get out and walk around with him. And so I've um, snapped a few pics over the years. I've got one here of uh, a couple of years ago with Judah, that little mop at the foreground, that's Judah. And we're just checking out a sunrise. We've done this so many times. Uh, and both of us are kind of mesmerized by sunrises. It's, it's fire and sunrises for me and Judah. We're, we're simple folks. And, um, and the thing about sunrises is, right, like if you live in a part of the world like in the Arctic where for periods of the year it's just sunlight all you know, 24 hours a day, or if you can imagine a world where there is no darkness, then sunrise wouldn't mean anything, right? It's just be... The sun's come around again. But because there is darkness, sunrise is brilliant and captivating and something to be cherished. Because the darkness is so great, therefore the sunrise can be so brilliant. And one of my favorite sayings is, you know, it gets darkest right before the dawn. That's the case for the Israelites. It has got to the darkest point, but it's got there right before the dawn, right before God remembers his covenant and acts for their redemption. He's going to act in mighty ways, he says. With a mighty hand, he'll force Pharaoh to let them go. Kind of calls to mind another situation in Egypt, possibly in the very same place that this is taking place right now, but hundreds of years before. Remember in Genesis, end of Genesis, we we see Joseph, who has been through so much tribulation. He was sold into slavery by his own brothers. He falsely imprisoned. He goes through all of this darkness and and comes out at the other end of it in, in chapter 50 and verse 20. He looks at his brothers who are frightened to face him because they are aware of their guilt and complicity in this, And he says to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so even in the midst of great darkness, I was speaking to someone this morning who's who's just at the bottom of the pit. He's He's in a place where all he can see is darkness and it doesn't look like it's lifting. We need to know even in the midst of that kind of darkness, God is always doing two things at least. He's always working 
for his glory and he's always working for our good. God is always doing that in the life of anyone who is a Christian. He's promised us that. And it's because he is the Lord who rules the world. And he moves and, and, and works his will such that he is glorified, the brilliance of the, the light of his redemption is seen, and that we are made more like his son. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 28, right? You remember, you, you memorize this one? Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If you're a Christian here tonight, this is what you can be assured of. You are loved by God, you've been called by God, and therefore every circumstance you find yourself in, because God rules the world, he's going to work those things for your good. Often, often God will use these, these moments and seasons of suffering to bring us to a place where we can see his glory most clearly demonstrated. That's what he's doing with the Israelites. And I believe that's what he does still to this day. We serve the Lord who reigns over all things. This is Jesus, right? This is the picture of Jesus we need to have. My advice for you would be not, when you picture Jesus, not to have this picture. I'm not massive on the old cross in the church because... I'm not sure that's exactly where our mind should go to when we think about Jesus. I think when we picture Jesus, yes, we remember his death on our behalf, and we'll do that in the Lord's Supper later on, but the main picture we need to have is of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, ruling over all things at the right hand of the Father. This is how Paul speaks of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. In him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. That's Jesus. That's the God who we worship. And because he rules over all things, he's also, point number two, able to keep his promises. All right, verse 2 to 5 says this, God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving and I have remembered my covenant. Remember, we've seen this before. Remembering the covenant isn't like he, it was on a to-do list and he lost it and then he found the post-it note one day. It's not, he doesn't remember in that sense. The remembering is that he is acting on it. He's acting on this covenant that he made with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, hundreds of years before. He made this covenant and he has not deserted it. He will honor it because he's the great covenant keeper. 
So Moses hears these words, these great words that the Lord, the living God, the the Lord who rules over all things is also going to keep his covenant. And he goes to the people of Israel in verse 9 and he says, uh, he tells them all that, that God has told him, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. They can't believe that God is a promise keeper because they've been through so much heartache. And I know for sure that people in this church feel the same way, to varying degrees, that the heartache that we've experienced often prevents us from fully trusting in God and his covenant-keeping nature. Maybe you're someone who's been through a, a difficult divorce. Maybe you've been abandoned by your husband or wife. And you can recall the time when they were standing up in front of the church and they said to you, I will never leave you, for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness or in health. I make covenant with you. And then you've seen them walk away from that covenant, break that covenant. That makes it difficult for you to trust God's covenant-keeping promises. Maybe it's more of a family of origin thing. Maybe, maybe one of your parents, maybe your father or your mother has, has abandoned you. Maybe they've abused you. That makes it very difficult for you to fully embrace God as covenant-keeping Lord. Maybe... I don't know, maybe it's church experience. Maybe the church has burned you. And in some ways, you view God through the lens of his bride, and so it's difficult for you to trust that God would keep his promises. I think to varying degrees, all of us have had these negative experiences, and they inhibit us from fully trusting God that he really will keep his covenant, that he said he will never leave us or forsake us, but what if? God wants Moses to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. He wants his people to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will keep his promises. He made them to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He has not forgotten them. He will see them through to completion. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. It's a beautiful verse. He says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. I get a little tingle when I read that verse. It's so true. What's the guarantee? What's the demonstration? What's the evidence that God will keep his promises? That where you're spouse or parents or church has failed you, God will remain faithful. His promise is in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of his own son. All of God's promises. You can string them out. All of them have their yes in Jesus Christ. So God rules over his world, and he keeps his promises and number three, he's the Lord who redeems his people. 
And these three things hang together. In fact, it's kind of like point one plus point two equals point three, right? Because God rules the world and because he keeps his promises, therefore he will redeem his people. No one's going to stop him from saving his people. And this idea of redemption is massive in the Bible. This is one of the big ideas of the Bible that you need to get your head around if you're going to understand at all what the Bible is about, what God's nature is like, and what, it's, what it is to be a Christian. You have to understand this idea of redemption. And really, it's a technical term. It's referred, especially in this time, to when a a powerful person, normally a man, who had some wealth and some authority, would step in and, and advocate for someone who was vulnerable and oppressed. So often it would be someone stepping in to buy the life of a slave, someone who was being subjugated, Right? Someone who was enslaved, they would step in and pay a price to redeem, to buy back that person. So you see this throughout the Bible, it's very clear in the book of Exodus. In fact, that what we're studying, 1 to 18, is all about God's redemption of Israel. But it's also in Ruth, right? You have Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, steps in and buys her and her family redeems them. You have it in Hosea, and you have it most beautifully demonstrated in the redemption that Jesus bought for us on the cross. A powerful person stepping in at great cost to himself to save someone enslaved. That's what our story is. That's what my story is. Only in our case, it's not someone throwing in some cash to buy us out of slavery. It's someone shedding their own blood. So I love the way Peter says it in uh, 1 Peter. In the next slide, I think there should be 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter has squarely in mind the story that we're reading right now. Right? He has that, that story of God redeeming his people. How? Through the Passover. And what was... The price that was paid for their redemption, it was the blood of a perfect, unblemished lamb. That was the blood that they painted on their doorposts that secured their salvation and delivered their redemption. And that, for us, is not simply a little sheep, but the Son of God himself. He is our perfect lamb. He is our redemption. And he paid for us with his own blood. Now, you guys are pretty po-faced tonight, but that is amazing that God would do that. For a people who are enslaved to sin and his enemies, that he would shed the blood of his own son to buy us out of slavery. He's amazing. So God says in verse 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you 
with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. One of the first instances of that word in the Bible right here in verse 6. I will redeem you. I will buy you. I will purchase you for myself. I will rescue you. And the great thing is, I mean, it would be great enough if that was all he did, deliver them out of slavery. It would be great if that's all he did for us, just save us from the consequences of our sin. But he doesn't stop there because when he buys a people for himself, he doesn't just set them free. He actually welcomes them into his household. He becomes their God and they become his people. And so he says in verse 7, I will take you. As my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. This is what God does when he redeems people. He doesn't just set them free from sin, set them free from their slave masters. He welcomes them into his family. That's what God has done for us. This is why Christianity, when it just becomes about having my sins forgiven and, and getting a, an insurance policy against hell, that Christianity is so weak and shallow. It's so lacking in the experience of God's love because then he just becomes like a jail master at open the gate. But if we understand redemption rightly, we haven't just been saved from our sins, but we've been adopted as his children. So I love what Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 13. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what he's done for us. He's delivered us out of the Egypt of our darkness, of our brokenness, of our sin, of our condemnation, and delivered us. Right, we use that terminology for delivering a baby. Right, That's, that's what the Father has done for us. He's, he's delivered us out of that danger and into, into his kingdom. I love the vision that John has. The Apostle John has this vision of the coming new heavens and new earth. God just gives him a little window into what's coming for us, for all of us who have been redeemed. And I love the picture that he, he paints for us, of us as God's redeemed people, living forever in perfect harmony with him as our God and us as his people. So in Revelation 21, this is what he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away, that old order that we live in right now, the old order in which we do experience darkness, we do experience pain and tears and mourning and crying, all of that will have passed away. 
That's the existence that we have to look forward to. Now, all of this should leave us tonight greatly encouraged. Greatly encouraged. Because what you are faced with, with this meta-theme of redemption, what you're faced with is this reality. You were enslaved to sin, and you had no hope of getting out of it. Nothing. Nothing to buy yourself out of it. No chance at all. That was going to be your experience for eternity. But you have a God who loves you and was willing to pay a costly price to redeem you. What comes to mind to me is Paul's exhortation to his church when he said and reminded them, you are not your own, you were bought with a price, you were redeemed with a price, therefore honour God with your body. In his context, he's talking about sexual purity, but we can broaden that out. How are we going to honour God with our body right now? We believe that God has given us a mission to be a community of people, helping people make all of life all about Jesus, and that for us is how we honour God with our body. It's not just in our gathering on a Sunday, it's not just in worshipping him as we're about to do, not just in sharing the Lord's Supper, but it's in every day remembering this day I've been bought with a price.